Good afternoon. I was struck yesterday. Is this the PA system working okay? Yeah. I struck yesterday when Gil asked, you know, how are you doing? How many people are having a lot of physical pain or headaches? And then just watching a forest of hands go up. Uh, yeah, we bring a lot to retreat with us. Uh, recently I was reading a book called Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness. A lovely book. I recommend it. Uh, not to say we're all traumatized, but we've all suffered and are in the throes of suffering the consequences of our conditioning. Yeah. I love the title, trauma sensitive, you know, sensitive to what you bring to the retreat, sensitive to the issues you're working with, sensitive to the ways and you've learned about yourself that you tend to struggle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would say for those of you who are not so familiar with the process of retreat, um, it's hard to know what's going to happen next. I know that's not exactly a comforting statement, but <laughs> <laughs> it can be comforting when you think at that point in time it was bad, and then later it got worse. What's going to be like later? You know, who knows? It might all go away. All your your uh, discomfort. Um, each of us tend to go through a kind of mysterious process that in one hand is unique and in the other hand has some commonality to it. Oh. And the way we go through it is it also has some unique quality to it. Uh, Some kinds of bodies settle quickly. You know? Some kinds of minds settle quickly. Um, sometimes the body settles quickly and then mind rebels. <laughs> sometimes the body won't settle and the mind I is um, discovering a depth you know, discovering a patience, a resilience, a, uh, a fortitude and determination. All that in the service of seeing, it's very helpful that our attitude um, doesn't search 
and and our uh, we approach to Sashin and retreat. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> My Zen is slipping in. <laughs> They're not so different. Uh, our approach to retreat doesn't get into a kind of a fixed, narrow strategy. Yeah. For one thing, you'll bore yourself to death. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you try to fit your mind into some narrow, rigid constraints, it's of course it's going to rebel. And why wouldn't it? Uh, being alive is much more adventurous, unpredictable, and varied th- than some narrow uh, definition we might want to give practice. Uh, our human organism is complex to sort of think, well, it should behave like this, and then like this, and then like this. Um, It's unlikely. You know, there, there, there's one teaching in Buddhist psychology that says there's, there's three layers to our consciousness. And one is like the cognitive layer, you know, the, that functioning of the mind that has ideas and opinions and conclusions and definitions of reality and this and that. And then there's a layer below it, an affective layer, the layer of emotion, of how we're, it's all being experienced. And actually the Sanskrit word for it is, translates hridaya, it translates as heart, very much like how our heart is responding to all of this. Yeah. And then the layer below is somewhat mysterious. It's um, it's the way our being is informed by what's being directly experienced. It, of, of course, our thoughts are part of what's being experienced. Our emotions are part of what's being experienced. But what's coming in through the sense doors, how it's um, impacting us. And then part of the mystery of it is when it's met with clear awareness, something registers. Something's taken in. It's sometimes called the experience of awareness and how we're shaped by that and how it resonates with something within us. We've been experiencing being alive since we were born. And in many ways we could say that in the practice of mindfulness we're working with three, three aspects of consciousness. Yeah. 
Maybe we'd like to think, well, we just drop down into that experiential level. That's not constrained by the ideas and conclusions of the mind. Are not even um, deterred by the emotional responses. What we're working with is an awareness that holds all three, that, that the interplay between them is, <coughs> is the realm of sati, of mindfulness. And then how do we do that? And sati, in some ways, sati is the first factor of the seven factors of awakening. And in another way we could say, sati is the factor that all the other factors um, arise out of. When the sati is established, they they are the fruits of it. They are the the blossoming of it in response to uh, the human organism, the cultivation of consciousness. Um, I was struck yesterday when Gil. I hadn't heard. Maybe you've heard Gil use this word "wow" before. I had never heard it. And I had this thought, I thought, oh, now I know the difference between uh, insight meditation and Zen meditation. (laughs) (laughs) My own shorthand definition of Zen meditation is, is that so? (laughs) It it comes from an extraordinary but apparently true story where... um, there was a monk who went on to become a famous teacher, but at one point he was living at a hermitage near a village. And one of the girls in the village got pregnant by a, a young man she was in love with in the village. Um, but to spare him from the wrath of her parents, she said that Hakuin the monk was the father. So the villagers stormed over to Hakuin's little hut on the outskirts of the village and demanded that he actually look after the baby as punishment for his wickedness. You know, and they, they called him all these vile names and he said, is that so? And he literally kept a diary and one of the things he wrote in his diary was that every day when he would, when he would go on his begging rounds, and he would ask for baby food, the people would explode, you know, and then, and then he would have another deluge of criticisms. But he continued undeterred. And then after about six months, the girl in the village who had got pregnant and had the baby couldn't stand it any longer. And so she told her parents, I was lying. He's not the father. This other person's the father. I just blamed it on him to spare him. And the villagers were astounded, you know, and they thought, what a saint. 
you know. He didn't protest his innocence, you know. He just said, is that so? He just, uh, just an incredible, gentle, patient, compassionate spirit. And they went to Hakuin and they said, you are a saint. You are a saintly person. You are the perfect example of Zen practice. And he said, is that so? (laughs) (laughs) So that's been my notion of uh, Zen mindfulness. And then I started to think, well, how do these two compare? Wow. (laughs) Um, The direct attention that affirms just this, just this is it, you know, just what's happening right now. Wow. it's, It's a blazing manifestation of existence, of conditioned existence. Wow. And then, is that so? Um, Every moment of existence is codependent. There's what's arising in the environment, in the circumstances, in the context, and then there's the human conditioning, meeting it and creating the moment. Um, and the human mind, even if all of it's, all it's doing is just giving it a conceptual label, sound, still it's constructing something. And then, of course, usually um, we name the sound, we place the sound, we associate it with other times we heard that sound or have never heard that sound. We have an emotional response to it. Um, We have some, especially when we're practicing mindfulness, you know, am I doing it right? Should I be hearing this or should I be following the exhale? Yeah. Is that so? Some way that we hold it all gently, spaciously. Okay, this is the moment that's arising, and no need to grasp it. No need to draw conclusions. And so I would say, wow, and is that so... Um, complement each other. They're they're both um, skillful ways of engaging mindfulness, of calling it forth. Uh And and really that's um, that's what we're attempting to do. Yeah. How how do we call forth mindfulness? 
with, within the context of our conditioned existence. You know, how, how do we call it forth? How do we sustain it? Um, and, and within the teachings of mindfulness, um, you know, w- when mindfulness is present and strong, it it has a balancing quality. You know, it tends to see the activities of the mind and the heart. You know, it tends to see when the mind is um, grasping at some ideas or resisting some ideas. It tends to see that when the thinking process is accompanied by an emotional process. And that the conclusions reinforced by the emotions have an extra weight of uh, of authenticity and taken as the truth. And as we start to see that, then there's a way in which we start to see through it. Is that so tends to arise. And in the process of establishing mindfulness, there's one way to look at it is there's two qualities. There's directed attention and receptive attention. That the directing the attention to the arising of the moment and the receptive attention, that 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 will create whatever it creates. And in many ways, this is the ongoing process of, um, of sati, you know, especially in our seated meditation, but also in, in all the forms of activity that we have here. You know, we, we're directing our attention, and then something arises. I remember a long time ago reading um, the finder of San Francisco Zen Center, his little book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And he says, um, concentrate on the breath, but not too much. And I remember thinking, what the heck does that mean? You know, <laughs> don't concentrate too much. What is too much? What's too little? You know, uh, how do you do something? And, but over the years, I've come to think what he meant was um, not in an exclusive way. No. Because directed attention, the shadow of directed attention is a kind of dissociation or detachment or suppression. Uh, 
And of course, then there's a shadow of receptive attention. The shadow of receptive attention is that as we investigate, we, we tend to uh, hold on to what, what is arising, you know, quite literally. Our awareness, our attention is distracted and taken away. Yeah. So the challenge for us is is to hold both of those, because as when they come into play together, they balance each other. Yeah. The the directed attention will experience the phenomena of the moment, the thought of the moment, the emotion of the moment. Um, But then, given the nature of the dynamic nature of existence, the dynamic nature of codependent arising, something else will follow right after it. Yeah. And receptive attention will notice that. Yeah. It's like that mysterious way we come we're quite concentrated, we're diligently following the sensations of the breath, and then suddenly we realize, I've been gone in a story for the last several minutes. Actually, I'm not even that sure how long I was gone, and I'm not even sure what happened in the story. <laughs> you know, that's the mysterious quality of that third level of consciousness. It was like, what just happened? Uh -huh. yeah. And so part of the challenge is, and this is where the, the, the wide view is really helpful, that, that because directed attention can become sort of narrow and wooden or mechanistic, yeah. whereas when, you, when you're holding a balance between these two, it's asking us, to have a kind of fluidity or flexibility of consciousness. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes we take it the whole way where it's like, have no fixed agenda. You know, maybe we could say, direct your awareness in, and I'll follow up on that in a moment, direct your awareness in a way that promotes sati. And be receptive to what arises from that, from what's created through that directed attention. Yeah. And when we start to do that, you know, when we start to watch the movements of the mind, you know, it's extraordinary. It truly is wow, <laughs> as Gil was saying yesterday. <laughs> the things that can occur to us, you know, just out of nowhere. Yeah. And then sometimes it's doubly wow 
give and the ones we grasp and the ones we reject. Almost all of us are so hard on ourselves, you know. The moments where we have quiet acceptance and often even the moments where we meet the moment with some kind of gracious benevolence, we discard. The, the moment where some expression of our suffering arises and, and contracts. Uh, it's like we cling to it. We have a tendency to cling to it, almost like some great accomplishment. Oh, yeah, that, you know. And then we, we have catch that intrigue and we follow it. Yeah. And then the cycle of consciousness, we, we delve into the story. And then we cycle back into a, a moment of awareness. And it's very helpful in that moment where you're aware, you're aware. To not rush back to where you ought to be. You know, I ought to be deep in my breath, like this skilled meditator I am, or I want to be. Or that Gil is, and I want to be like Gil. In that moment, can we um, can we train ourselves to pause? You know, can we can we train ourselves because often there's something revealing right there about our diligence and what our diligence is supported by. If our diligence in practice is supported by some kind of self-criticism, some desperate need to get it right, you know, then each of those moments is a little bit like an assault, you know, it's a little bit like a slap in the face, you know, you did it wrong again, slap, quickly before anybody notices, before even you notice, get back to your directed awareness, your directed attention. So in a way that pause is like a heroic act. We, we pause there and, and let ourselves, let our conditioned existence just be what it is. Yeah. <coughs> and dependent upon the stream of consciousness, the narrative that preceded that, you know? Like when, we, when, we, when we're quite settled, we might 
have a stream of consciousness of like three or five seconds. And usually we haven't added a whole lot. So the body, the state of mind, haven't shifted so much. But if it was several minutes, we've cooked up quite a bit. We've cooked up a narrative. We've added to it our usual, our usual repertoire of emotions. We have somatically embodied those emotions. That has created its influence on our state of mind. And when we can pause right there and just let that be felt, however it appears, you know, whatever is most dominant. There's a wonderful sati factor of a kind of stabilization, a kind of balancing that can blossom out of that moment. Yeah. And there's kind of a revelation, as I was saying, we can see some of the qualities of our sincere determination about practice. You know? And sometimes when we can see how we've coupled our diligence, our sincerity, with a kind of self-criticism, you know, we can allow for a certain kind of compassion for ourselves. Hmm. Sometimes that self-criticism <coughs> has some sense of inadequacy, personal inadequacy. And the compassion is like a beautiful antidote. One of the requests of mindful practice is a kind of a steady deliberateness. Okay, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. There's no rush to make something happen. There's no rush to get somewhere. Just being nobody, going nowhere. Just the steady deliberateness. How beautiful. And then when we see, when we get these glimpses of, of what we've brought to that beautiful practice out of our own conditioning, in, in how we've taken it in, in, in some extraordinary way, coupled it with our self-criticism, you know, this is not good enough. I'm not good enough. This mind should be more concentrated. 
this this mind should be more settled. It shouldn't think those kinds of thoughts. No. It shouldn't get imbued them with these those kinds of emotions. And we can pause, we can meet it, we can feel it. And it sparks some of the quality of sraddha, trust, confidence in being. And it's like we earn our own trust, you know. When our mind is agitated, lost in its grasping and averting, you know, there's a way in which we don't trust it. There, there is a way in which um, somehow our self-criticism seems the truer definition of who we are. But when we can meet it, the moment, and we can let it just as it is be, um, something else starts to be nurtured. This quality of trust and confidence. And it requires a certain kind of courage. It requires a certain kind of um, a certain kind of engagement. <coughs> it's a little bit like stepping into the unknown and trusting that that's an okay thing to do. You just pause and let yourself experience what's in that moment. And so it requires enormous patience because stepping into the unknown is a little bit like self-annihilation. You know, but wait a minute, I put a lot of effort into creating my version of reality my version of myself. You know? A lot of my creative juices have gone into creating this, <laughs> even though it causes me suffering, <laughs> even though I complain about it still. Um, in the early suttas it says, like stepping into the unknown is like lifting a fish out of water. It sort of quivers. It's out of its element. You know? And then very interestingly, as, as Gil was mentioning earlier, one of the ways we work at it is somatically. 
the book I was reading, you know, by David Trelevin on trauma-sensitive uh, mindfulness. One of the key ways to work is somatically. Uh, I, I think it's not simply a coincidence that the first foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the body breath. Yeah. That since we were born, we, we've been attempting to negotiate this human life. Yeah. Sometimes in its suttas, and uh, a quotation by Dogen Zenji, the finder of uh, Soto Zen in Japan. Um, he says, the enlightened are enlightened about the nature of conditioned mind. And before that happens, the conditioned mind is making up the definition of enlightenment. Yeah. Oh, it's like this. It's perfect, you know. And so I have to get to that perfection. And in some ways, it's almost like the challenge for us is almost like the opposite. Can you be yourself, the terrible, terrible person you are? <laughs> <laughs> whose mind won't stop roaming all over the place. Who in their craziness adds feelings and conclusions <laughs> and associated thoughts and memories and anticipations. You know? oh. But can we pause and allow that being to be. Yeah. And can we remind ourselves that's a delicate process. No. And it becomes more delicate as our sincerity, our dedication, sort of come into being, you know? When we're sort of distracted and we're jumping all over the mind and attention or jumping all over the place, it's not so poignant. But when you're sitting dedicatedly and sincerely attempting to immerse in the Buddha way, uh, And then you notice mind has wandered off into some story. In that return to awareness, can all that be forgiven? Can there be this courageous act of just meeting the moment? 
And can there be enormous patience when you sort of do it and sort of don't do it? It's a new territory for us. It's always new. Each period of meditation, we're starting over. So that quality of patience there too. How do we meet that patiently? In in uh, developmental psychology of children, you know, there there's a notion of good enough. You know, it's like the um, the child needs good enough parents. If the parents were perfect, the child would never have um, challenges that required it to um, modify its expectations of perfection of the parents and by extension of other people, of the world, of life of themselves, you know. And Winnicott came up with this notion that actually good enough parents are more helpful in cultivating resilience and adaptability than perfect parents, even if they did exist. So in a way we can take our good enough effort, you know, and think about it the same way, you know? Not so much, oh, well, can you do this perfectly? Can you, can you be the perfect meditator? You know? But more, your sincerity, your dedication, your, your willingness to meet that moment, you know? to notice, acknowledge, somewhere between acknowledge and let it register. You know, Gil, yesterday Gil was using the word note. Yeah. So you notice. And then actually this cluster of note, acknowledge, let it register, they, they're really dependent upon the state of mind. You know, when the mind is more settled, it can apprehend experience. When, it, when it's not so settled, then it's just helpful to name it, literally. You know? So we notice, we acknowledge, we contact, you know, in whatever way is dominant in that moment. You come back to awareness, it's like, what's happening now? And maybe the dominant feature is the state of mind. Maybe the dominant feature is some way in which your posture has shifted. 
maybe the dominant feature is a strong emotion. This morning it was my turn to make breakfast. And I, I did it uh, probably a couple of years ago. And um, and I didn't think too much about it. Uh, but when I got there to do it, I was a little anxious, you know? Rationally, I had lots of time. I had explicit instructions. I'd got some pointers from Gil. I had support. <laughs> you know, all these things. And it felt like that anxiety had a, um, a long history. No. Sometimes the, and it wasn't like I was frothing at the mouth or anything, you know. <laughs> no. Or I needed some Valium or something, you know. <laughs> uh, To let ourselves feel the emotion and, and feel into the history, you know. It's very helpful when you have an emotion to say, this is not the first time, you know. This, this is part of how I express being alive, you know. Mm. So we might, in that moment of pause, moment of acknowledging, moment of contact, and then experiencing. Yeah. Can it be allowed to be what it is? whether you meet the wish to meet that with wow or is that so or whatever else sometimes it's a lot of fun to cook up your own particular uh sensibility phrase word you know, to sort of see what 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 works for you And I would suggest that one too. This is not the first time I felt this emotion. You know. And this emotion doesn't communicate in the language of the mind. It communicates in the language of the heart. You know. It's a feeling. You know. Can you can you let it be felt? Can you let its history um, 
be touched. Not so that you can fix it, not so that you can figure it out, blame your parents for it, or your siblings, or whoever. but just to be reminded about the depth of being human. And one of the great gifts of the somatic is that it can relate to these depths. The... the, um, the intense experiences uh, register in the body. Uh, the body can hold them. As, as we sit and let the body find its, its way of being and let the breath flow in and out there's so many wonderful somatic tips letting the eyes soften in their sockets letting the lips the mouth soften when we let the mouth soften and the tongue soften it helps to soften the urgency of the inner narrative. When we let the eyes soften, it it shifts something in the mind, in the brain, similar to what happens when we sleep. When we let the face soften, uh, our emotions are expressed in our face. When we let the face soften, it, it can shift the um, and soften the emotionality, the impulse to emotion. It's not a new and improved way to control. It's not a, a new and improved way to to take charge and fix yourself. It, it's a way to connect. to what you are, to that third consciousness, you know, it's it's a way to start to cultivate a um, a stability. But it's not a stability made of stone. It's it's a tender stability. That, that holds the vulnerability of a human life. And the breath has an amazing capacity to help us to return to that. Yeah. I'd really encourage you to uh, Attend to the breath.
in, 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 in the process of directed attention, In the suttas, there are many descriptions. I read one where it said there are 40 basic breath practices. Uh, the, the one I often uh, recommend is allow the inhale, release the exhale. And more like the breath breathing the body than the mind up in its control tower telling them both what to do. And each time we come back to sit to, uh, to start over. to remember what an amazing thing we've got ourselves into. Yeah. What an amazing thing it is to be a human being. Each of us, each of us with exactly the history we have. Each of us with exactly the body we have. The somatic patterns, the thought patterns, the emotional patterns. And it's something as simple and direct as sitting quietly and breathing could be so potent. That could give us a way to relate to this incredible complexity. But it can. And then I would say, When the meditation ends, um, pause just for a moment. Feel the effects of what just happened. And let something register. Not so much like, okay, now I'm going to go out and be super mindful more how does it feel in the body? What's the state of mind? What's the disposition? And then as you get up, can you walk out the door carrying that into the next thing? Hmm. Here I go, out into the world. The fledgling condor, you know, the mother takes it up to a high cliff and says, go for it. And then uh, usually the fledgling looks over the edge and says, I don't think so. <laughs> it's a long way down there <laughs> and I don't really know how to fly. <laughs> and then amazingly, the mother nudges it off the edge. The, and the condor learns how to fly. <laughs> <laughs>
Each day is another day in retreat. Each period of meditation, each meal, each walking period. Um, It's a new life, it's a new experience. Why would we ever want to do ourselves the disservice of narrowing it down to some mechanical process, some simplified version of what should happen and what should not happen? How do we keep that alive within us? This practice asks us for the genius of our creativity not our capacity to be mechanical. <laughs>